0: Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that believes all people deserve safe, vibrant, and stable communities. Today we have
1: Hope, Julia, Bianca,
0: and Zoe. Yay! I am super excited to be diving into this today. It's been something that I've been thinking about and ranting about to my loved ones, Um, so I'm excited to be talking about it here on the podcast and actually learning more from uh, my brilliant co-host. And I'm a little bit sick this week, so sorry if I cough, Um and sorry for whoever has to edit my coughs out. Uh, no, sorry. So- <laughs> Say
2: no
3: sorry, sorry, Hope. <laughs> the Inventor of no sorry.
0: <laughs> sorry, my really? body is failing me. Damn. Yeah, no, wait. Did, um, Hope, didn't you start no sorry? I did. <laughs> Good memory. No Zoe. sorry. Um, no sorry. Thank you for the reminder. So, anyways, this episode was inspired by a conversation I recently had with a neighbor who's also an old college friend of my partner. Um. And uh, we moved into a new house um, last December, and so she lives around the corner from me and we were just chatting. And I thought I would start this episode out by describing where I live. Um, I'm in Milwaukee, as some of you know, so just like try to imagine what my neighborhood is like or who you think lives there based on a few facts. Things that are true about my neighborhood. One, there's a forest school that my two-year-old goes to that I can walk to from my house. And a forest school is just where like toddlers play in the forest all day. It's very cute. Two, there's four grocery stores in walking distance. Three, more than half of my neighbors are homeowners. Um, four, our neighborhood has more than 10 times the number of cafes than the average for Wisconsin. And 30% more bars than the average for Wisconsin. And we got a lot of bars here. Um, five, a new coffee shop is opening up in our neighborhood right near an urban ecology center, which is just kind of like a nature center, um, which is adjacent to the largest city-owned park in Milwaukee. And then lastly, I'm comfortable walking anywhere in the neighborhood night or day. So those are kind of like some true things about my neighborhood. And it sounds pretty nice, right? Like, I don't know mm. what you all are imagining, but like, sounds like it would be a place you might be like, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all very precious. So this is why it annoyed me so much when my white neighbor said about our neighborhood, it's been up and coming for so long, but it just never seems to arrive. Mm. Um, which like, I just was like, wait, what? We love our neighborhood. We feel like it's got so much going for it. It's such a great place to live. So like, hmm, I wonder what could have made this white lady say this. And like, arrive for who? What could she be meaning? Our neighborhood is less than 20% white. So it's majority, it's like 60% Latino, um, black, mostly Southeast Asian, making up the rest of it. So given that, it seems like up and coming just means a desire for more white people coming in and displacing people. So that's like the comment that I've been mad about since we had that conversation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. wow. Seriously?
3: Yeah. It never seems to arrive. That's
0: like such a weird thing. Yeah.
3: Also,
1: just the phrase up and coming, I think is like, it's so loaded.
0: Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask about is like, What do you, like, what does that mean to you all? Do you ever hear people say it about neighborhoods? So a neighborhood is up and coming, and what do you take that to mean? Yeah,
1: well, I'm from Pittsburgh, and I was born there, and I spent, like, all of my life there until I went to college. And I remember when I was a teenager, people started started describing Pittsburgh as, like, an up-and-coming city. And I wasn't really sure what that was referring to until... I was, like, slightly older, and I realized that was pointing to, like, first of all, the biggest employers in Pittsburgh are, number one, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC for short, and then recently, a lot of, I'll be getting into this later as well, but, like, a lot of tech companies have also um, come into Pittsburgh and set up offices there, and so people are, like, very excited about the prospect of having, obviously, like, more jobs, but then it's, like, you know, like, the effects of those corporations coming into the city and what that does to change the landscape of, like, who can live there and, like, just what it looks like aesthetically. Like, that's what makes me think it's, like, such a loaded term. So, yeah,
2: Yeah, I don't necessarily hear people say that specifically, but I definitely hear people say things like, this is a safe neighborhood, or this is not a safe neighborhood, um, or like, this is a good neighborhood. Um, And I think when people say things like that, it's often like, it's a very specific view of what safe means that's not necessarily unpacked. So like, oftentimes people mean, well, one, like, There's a lot of white people in my neighborhood, which is obviously whack, um, and people should unpack their assumptions about Mm -hmm. that. But also, like, safety, meaning the police are going to come quickly if I have a problem or there's a big police presence, it's very based on, like, what people, people feeling like the police are there for them, you know, and, like, that that is what's going to make them safe which obviously is very different if you're somebody who does not feel safe when there are more police in your neighborhood.
1: Yeah.
0: I love that you brought up Pittsburgh. So I'm going to kind of like jump to something that I plan to talk about a little bit later, but I think it makes sense here that the idea of like gentrification and displacement is different for different parts of the country. And I think particularly for like Rust Belt cities, um, there's almost a kind of like you know, they're they're aspirational. They want to feel like they're being revitalized as cities. So mm-hmm. if you look at like Buffalo, Detroit, Milwaukee, um, there are cities that like Pittsburgh too, um, Baltimore. You know, they 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 see like New York, LA, San Francisco having gentrification happen, and then sometimes residents of those cities think like, well, that's how we're going to revitalize our city. We need to mm-hmm. copy that development that's happening in those other cities but like we don't have that influx of like tech jobs and big money in like a city like Milwaukee we have a housing shortage because they're not building more housing so housing prices are high a little bit but we're not ever going to have like a huge influx of people with a ton of cash coming in and pushing everyone out right right but it, it becomes almost like a marker for like development So I think it's important to point that out because, you know, as podcast co-hosts, we live in different parts of the country and we represent different areas. And I do think that it's a different phenomenon depending where you live and on the history of your city, too. Yeah. I kind of wanted to start out just by trying to define it a little bit, because in thinking about this and unpacking it, gentrification is talked about so often, but I just don't hear it defined very much outside of like a very academic sense. So kind of just to give a little context, but definitely not a full definition um duh of course the word itself is derived from gentry which I was like that's so ridiculous yeah Um, I actually (laughs) never thought about
2: that oh my god (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: never put that together right it came out of London (laughs) in the 50s so it makes sense why it would have gentry in it um my favorite definition from Merriam-Webster for gentry is a class whose members are entitled to bear a coat of arms, though they're not of noble rank. <laughs> so basically, like it's rich people who own land, but you're not like the Kardashians or a Koch brother, right? It's like you're rich, but like nobody cares who you are. So that's who the gentry was. Um. So yeah, first used in London around the 50s. And uh, nobody really agrees on what gentrification is, but most often I saw definitions kind of like profit driven race and class change of a historically disinvested neighborhood and that part is important so it's an area that has had disinvestment um, or no investment and i think that's important when we think about cities because you have that how this lines up in the US with like the war on drugs and cities changing from like the you know the 50s on through about the 90s and then you started to see white after white flight then white people coming back into urban centers into like dc New York, um, and then displacing people in that way. So I think that disinvestment part of it is really important. The other thing I wanted to mention is that there's a couple of different kind of dimensions for gentrification. So you have displacement of lower income residents, a physical transformation of the neighborhood, <clears throat> so buildings changing, things like that, and then the cultural character of the neighborhood changing, and all of those things can happen um it doesn't have to be i don't think it has to be all three for the term to fit that's kind of like a more classical definition more recently i think the term gentrification gets used just to include any neighborhood that becomes less affordable um or or sometimes people use it just any neighborhood that's having investment or development even like even if there's not displacement happening so like any neighborhood getting nicer is like oh it's gentrifying even though it might just be like you know they've got more money to invest in the, in the neighborhood, which we would want. Yeah, and then, I think, oh, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. I was just
3: going to say, ahead. yeah, I think that's like an important distinction for gentrification because kind of in the same way that people can like overuse, like, well, there's no ethical consumption over capitalism. I think people can be like, well, no matter where I move in a city, I'm like gentrifying. Um, so it can be yeah use like too broadly where it's like no it's like a specific thing that's not like the entire city necessarily Um, and that it is very plausible to like look into the history of different neighborhoods when you're moving which is something that like since I moved recently I was trying to figure out where would be appropriate for me to move to
0: (laughs) yeah exactly that's that's 100 percent what I'm talking about and another thing I think it inadvertently does is when you have situations where city development is done well, where there isn't displacement, but a neighborhood receives investment. So whether it's through like some of the stuff we'll talk about later, like land trust or community activism, rent control, you know, there's a lot of different policies that can help people stay in their homes. Then if that neighborhood received investment and became nicer, people might be like, oh, it's gentrified. And so it has this like insidious way of also kind of saying that like, only white middle-class people want nice neighborhoods and nice things, right? And, like, I think we have to be wary of how that's used in such a broad way. The other thing I wanted to say up front is that, is just to tease out a little more of the gentrification versus displacement. And there's direct displacement where residents can't afford to stay in their homes. And this happens sometimes when rent goes up. But, like, when I lived in D.C., a lot of people were homeowners, so it actually was related to their property taxes. So, like, they own their houses but they couldn't afford the taxes. And so they would end up just being foreclosed on like a a house that had been in their family for a long time. So that's part of it. Um, Indirect displacement isn't like as fast, but that's where like, you know, residents are moving out and new people are moving in and kind of like taking things over really slowly. Or sometimes existing residents of a neighborhood start to feel like, this neighborhood isn't for me anymore. I don't feel as comfortable here for many of the reasons we'll talk about later. Um, and so they leave that way. Cool. So with all of that defining out of the way, um, I think we wanted to dive into some other aspects of gentrification. And Zoe had a link that she wanted to kind of share and revisit. Yes,
3: I do. Um, so I remember a few years ago, this came out, I was working in a gallery at the time. So I was like talking around with my coworkers and as soon as Hope brought up this episode, I was like, I must discuss this. Um, so this is in 2016. There was like a public art project where they did this like Gentrifiers Anonymous group. Um, I'm like, at first I just was like, it's really cringe. The more I read about it, I have like mixed feelings, but I'm like fascinated. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to like read some of the description about it and uh yeah we'll we'll see what we think so um gentrifiers anonymous 2016 was an awareness raising public art project that brought together those from communities in the process of becoming gentrified and those who were moving into these communities invited to create a public art project for the month to month project the brooklyn high art machine responded with gentrifiers anonymous which became part of a series of events around gentrification beltra and duven Duvernay, who are the two artists that were running it, um, who have been residents of the same building in Crown Heights for the past 18 years, created the project as they saw tremendous social change in their own neighborhood. Crown Heights is rapidly gentrifying. Gentrifiers Anonymous took the form of a meeting, in quotes, to have an uncomfortable discussion that was not being had, end quote, and also create a space where the uncomfortable discussion could happen. The artist gave out a pamphlet titled You Discovered Nothing that illustrated a 12-step process of how to integrate into a new neighborhood, including practicing good neighborhood etiquette, something they say can get ignored by new settlers when old and new cultures mix. Um, steps included advice to meet all your new neighbors, not just those like you, and to hold to help hold landlords responsible for ethical renting. Um, so yeah, I think that really relates to what Hope was saying about just how, like, Trenchification is not super talked about as it's happening um, so much as from like an academic lens, but as like the people in the community talking about it. So an invitation to the Gentrifiers Anonymous meeting was circulated by month to month and invited attendees, quote, to publicly confess their own sins of gentrification, large or small, in order to explore their complacency and complicity in the citywide struggle for affordable housing and the wholesale displacement of low-income New Yorkers, end quote. Over email correspondence for this research, the artist described the process of the event. Quote, when people first arrived at the meeting, they were invited to mingle, have a drink, and look over the pamphlet. Once the official meeting began, they were asked to take turns speaking, and a timer was set to limit how long people could speak. People were to introduce themselves and then share a story of how they are affected by, interact with, or benefit from gentrification. The meeting's rules, answers needed to be short, would be recorded, and should be free of excuses. We're followed by a classic opening, following a template of therapeutic interventions, i.e. Hi, everyone, I'm Mildred, and I'm a gentrifier. Which just like the idea of people going around and being wow. like, "Hi, I'm I'm gentrifier." Um, well, but- yeah, yeah <laughs> yes, <laughs> I I'm excited to have everyone's reaction when I get through this this kind of <laughs> lengthy description. But I felt like I needed to fully describe what what this was. Yeah, <laughs> um, because yeah, as I said, I'm so fascinated by this. So Beltra, one of the organizers, or one of the people that ran this, began with a true story of how she once attended a tenants meeting after moving into Crown Heights, only to discover that the meeting was about keeping out people exactly like her, people who came into renovated apartments with rent higher than that charge to most other tenants. At that moment, the issue of gentrification became personal for her. Beltra said, her story setting the tone for much of the rest of the meeting. Uh, In quotes, the discussion, because it was centered on gentrification, ended up being a discussion about race slash racism and class, the artist commented. One African-American speaker whose family lived in a Queens neighborhood for generations pointed out the irony of her family members being perceived as, quote, other in a place which is the only place they've lived. Beltre and DuVernay, mothers, Caribbean Americans, Native New Yorkers, and long-term Crown Heights residents describe themselves as, in one way, typical of their neighborhood, yet also as part of the art world and friends with those now arriving to live in the area, part of the issue. It is here that that Gingerfire Anonymous calls out its own name the loudest, the meeting's name and objective close to those organizations such as Alcoholics Anonymous that are geared to make attendees recognize their own enabling. Gentrifiers Anonymous was a way for us to approach the issue of gentrification as well as race, gender, and class for an audience beyond our block. Beltra and DuVernay explain, one thing that was powerful about the meeting was that people were asked to talk about gentrification as something that they participate in and are part of. It isn't something, quote, out there.
0: My brain. Oh, my God.
3: (laughs) So, thoughts? (laughs)
0: Anonymous is for people who want to stop using alcohol. Yes, Judging right. I was like, what "Anonymous the heck? is not for people who want to stop being gentrified Yeah,
3: no, that's. I was also when it made that comparison specifically. I was like, I don't know if you know Even, what AA is, but
0: that's not it. There's Al-Anon, which is for like families of people who are struggling with alcohol addiction, and then it's about working through enabling. But even still, like, that's such a stretch. All of this yeah. takes so much personal responsibility out of something because they're not trying to stop or change anything. They just want absolution. It's more like a priest confessional right. than it is right. like an AA meeting. Yeah. Like, you can do, you know, some Hail Marys and, like, now you don't have to feel bad about your $7 coffee while your neighbors are kicked out. It's that's, This is mind-boggling.
3: Yeah, that is a good analogy, the priest confessional. Just like, yeah, you're just coming to be like, I gentrified. My bad. We all do. <laughs> like It's just ridiculous. What a, what a wild concept. This is.
2: Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I see what you mean, Zoe. Like, I have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, it's like, it is important to talk about these issues. And I think that's like a good impulse to broaden right. these conversations. But... I also feel like it's very much putting the locus on individuals as the people who are causing gentrification, when in reality there are a lot of bigger structural factors at play, and even on the individual level, it's like, these may be reasonable anxieties, and probably are, that people have about their complicity in gentrification, but... That could be directed towards like organizing and mutual aid work instead of essentially like an art project which sort of
0: diffuses those emotions. Right. Not to be too pedantic, but this part is just destroying me. Following the template of therapeutic interventions. It's not an intervention if there's no change. Right. (laughs) It's not an intervention. yeah it doesn't follow the format of that because that's literally not the point
3: (laughs) in an
1: intervention (laughs) can you
0: imagine if you were like my friend has a drug problem and you're like friend i need you to stand up in front of these people and tell them how much drugs you use and that's the end of your intervention right like that's that's mind-boggling that follows nothing and there's like they yeah sorry. No, oh, you broke my brain.
3: <laughs> it's, I mean, it's been haunting me since 2016, so I Please. needed to bring it to you all. <laughs> oh my god. Wait, I need to look at this right now.
0: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah. The Holy the shit. Thing <laughs> about, about this is that as we have noted in starting out this episode, gentrification is not an easily defined or understood concept. So you put these people in a room and you're asking them to be confessional about something that they may not even understand. You know, like they're, right. the examples they're giving of how they've gentrified, who knows what it's based on, you know? Or like if people even have thought about all the stuff we're talking about today. So it's just like not, it's not good for anyone, I don't think. But so you said you had mixed feelings about it now. So I'm curious. I think just kind of, something that Julia touched on, like some of the
3: reasoning resonated with me, but like definitely not the approach, but like saying how they wanted it to be something discussed and not something just like out there. Um, And right, which also is not like making it an individual issue. But I think things like gentrification, even like bigger concepts, like, oh, like patriarchy, like capitalism can be talked about in such a way where it's like, they just exist. There's no cause. There's no solution. So I, yeah, it was like, okay, they had some ideas that were, like, getting at something. Did they do anything with them?
0: No. <laughs> it also just centers whiteness somewhere, it seems like, like, if you're asking people to talk about how they themselves are participating in gentrification.
3: Right.
1: Because I
0: think, I thought that the artists
3: were
2: that started were not white
0: yeah so maybe everybody was talking about their own experience
2: they were both black they're both black yeah but it does i mean like looking at the photos it looks like most of the participants were white um so it does still sort of feel like it's centering adjacency to whiteness in that sort of way um
3: right
1: it's like that
2: book white fragility
3: Yeah, if it had been if the artist had been white, I think I also would would be be much more totally cancelled. Not mixed feelings. Yes, exactly. Right. But I feel like that does complicate it somewhat.
0: Right. That's why gentrification is so complex because you can have lots of different cities and lots of different kinds of people moving in and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's genuinely hard for folks to know where do they fit in and like, you know. Where mm-hmm. I worried about that and in moving into our neighborhood, because as I mentioned, it's like less than 20% white and we have probably a slightly more expensive house than the average in our neighborhood. And I worried about it, but also I live in what everyone likes to say is the most segregated city or, you know, in America with a black and Mexican husband and a mixed race child. So I'm like, where I'm supposed to go, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it's not, it's not clear cut in knowing like what, at what, place you become a gentrifier
1: right I, I think, think that just, yeah go ahead. That. I think no that fun. just highlights the fact that it's like the systemic causes of gentrification are like the root causes as well because like you know like as Julia was saying as you, as everybody was saying I think it's like this sort of setup that we were just discussing it makes this gentrification process a highly individualized one and it's like not that people don't have individual responsibility but I think it like does good to highlight that like there are like large structural things that cause gentrification as well.
0: Good segue. Should we talk about a large structural porky thing that is uh, problematic with gentrification? I think police. we should. Let's do
2: it. Um, yeah. So one of the sort of broader systemic impacts that I wanted to talk about with gentrification is its impacts on policing. Um, And one of the major problems with gentrification is the way that it's linked to police violence. So as wealthier, whiter residents move into a neighborhood, they tend to call the police more, often because they view black and brown residents of their neighborhood and very innocuous activities that people are doing as threatening to them. Um, You know, things that have led to, like, quality of life complaints to the police are things like people playing dominoes on the sidewalk or street vendors selling food um very harmless activities one study found that for every 10 percent increase in property values there's a half a percent increase in arrests and this can sometimes be police interactions that are more like ticketing um legal searches those types of interactions But it can also lead to much more Mm. extreme incidents of police violence. Um, So that may not sound like a big increase, but the impacts can be very extreme. So one example of this in Brooklyn pretty recently was the police killing of Saeed Vassell a couple of years ago. Vassell was someone who was known by residents of the neighborhood, and it was pretty well known that he struggled with mental illness. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that he was a really kind person I had never physically hurt anyone. Um, He lived in Crown Heights, which is an area that's been classified as experiencing ongoing gentrification. So new people were moving into the neighborhood who didn't know him. um, And someone called the police because they saw him waving around an object that they weren't sure what it was. They thought maybe it looked like a gun. And they told the police, quote, he looks like he's crazy, unquote. Um, police arrived on the scene and shot and killed him. It turned out that he was just holding a scrap of metal. It was not a gun. So this was a very direct example of how black and brown folks who are neurodivergent or live with mental illness can be perceived as a threat by wealthy white residents as they move into gentrifying neighborhoods. Um, And a more recent example, last year, Breonna Taylor's family filed a lawsuit saying that her death was caused in part by gentrification. The city of Louisville, where she lived, had increased policing in specific areas as part of real estate redevelopment efforts there. Um, So gentrification of a neighborhood really directly increases the chances of residents experiencing police violence, um, particularly if you're someone who is already at increased risk of being targeted by the
0: police. This really speaks to the perceived safety too that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Where, you know, how, how safe people think or feel like a neighborhood is, is really often not based in any, it's not statistical. It's not even on personal experience. Um, I know that that's definitely true in Milwaukee. The neighborhood we were renting at before we moved here is one, it's not gentrifying because it was already like, working class, middle class, white people, but it's just like more hip young people moved in. And so it's like the cool neighborhood in Milwaukee. Um, and like, there's been a bunch of muggings and there's like a fair amount of crime there because there's more people at bars, there's more people not paying attention and a lot of things like that happen. And when you compare the crime map of like that neighborhood to where I live now, my neighborhood looks much safer. But if you ask people in Milwaukee, their perception would be like, oh, there's brown and black people there. And they they'll just say like, I feel unsafe. And I think that that like calling the police on little things is kind of tied to that too. I don't know. Does that resonate with anyone else?
3: Yeah, I think that's interesting because um, so yeah, I just moved to Chicago a couple months ago. The first week I was here, the like catalytic converter was stolen from my car, um, and I had to get my car fixed, and it was a whole ordeal. But like, I told several people just like, oh yeah, the park got stolen. I just moved, like, just like it was stressful, and like her, like several people asked like oh, like, are you, like, worried about your neighborhood now? And I was like, no, not at all. Like, I was like, I feel perfectly safe. Like, a thing was stolen from, like, my car, but, like, I've never felt unsafe or, like, that doesn't give me any, like, additional reservations. But I think, right, there's, like, kind of no tie to people of, like, what, like, a safe neighborhood is.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, I guess this ties into what I wanted to talk about, which is broken windows theory. So this ties into what, I mean, everyone's been discussing, but I think it ties directly into what Julia was just discussing. But like, there's actually been a lot of legislation around how neighborhoods, quote unquote, should look that is tied to gentrification. And it's like directly caused the kind of targeted violence that Julia was discussing earlier. And so what broken windows theory is, is, well, it was coined by these social psychologists in the 1980s. And it says that like visible signs of quote unquote crime, even minor things like graffiti or littering in an environment would lead to further crime because people would think like, oh, this is an environment where quote unquote crime already happens. So like it would lead to people committing more crimes. That was the idea. So then the other idea was that if people were to police or heavily criminalize these small things. So then people would get the message in the community and they would be dissuaded from committing any kind of crime at all. You can kind of probably predict what sort of effects that led to. Um, And it's called broken window theories because like the people who came up with it argued that like, if a building has one broken window, then all of them would soon be broken. Whereas if a building had no broken windows, then it's likely that it would remain that way. Of course, all of this theorizing was based off of very scant research it's racist and classist and it also neglects the fact that the main reason why like specifically an areas infrastructure may need repairs because city governments often neglect those neighborhoods and fail to provide resources to repair them. And this, I mean, when I was looking, when I was like thinking about this, I also was thinking about Ruth Wilson Gilmore and her idea of organized abandonment, which is like, this idea that cities will decide which areas to invest resources to and which res- which areas to not. And that sort of leads to like disparities. It leads to like differences in policing and like who gets arrested just based on like where the city decides is a good place to like invest or not. So Nevertheless, a lot of politicians have used broken windows theory to bolster their legislation. One of the most notorious examples of this is Rudy Giuliani, who very much subscribed to this theory, like he said this publicly. And he also worked very closely with his police commissioner to severely criminalize things like subway fare evasion, public drinking and graffiti, which, of course, led to more policing, often of black and brown people, which then led to more violence. So then, like, when you ask, like, who is this for? Like, what kind of legislation, like, who was this kind of legislation really for? And the answer that comes to mind for me are the wealthy people who are like coming in and gentrifying who, like, I mean, it goes back to what people were talking about earlier about like what makes your neighborhood safe. But like, I think certain people just like want their neighborhood to look and feel a certain way because otherwise they don't feel like it's a safe neighborhood. And so, of course, that leads to the kind of violence that Julia was just discussing.
2: Yeah. And following off of that, one thing I also wanted to talk about is the ways that gentrification contributes to a very specific look and feel of a neighborhood, um, Mm -hmm. which we kind of touched on earlier. But essentially, in a lot of cases, this is some combination of the aesthetic of wealthy people in that area combined with sort of the aesthetic of like investment banks or whatever real estate companies think wealthy people in that city want. Um, So one example is in San Francisco, which historically has been known for having a lot of colorful buildings. Um, There are a lot of wooden buildings that needed to be painted and they were painted with these really bright like pastel colors and all these different things. Um, But increasingly, as neighborhoods gentrify, real estate companies paint buildings in those neighborhoods gray. Because it's seen as more neutral and more desirable by wealthier renters and buyers, um, there was this study done a few years ago on like housing flips in the Bay Area, where you like take a house, you buy a house, you redo it, um, and then sell it for more money. Um, and the ones that made the most money, a third of them were repainted from a more colorful exterior to gray. Um, So I think it's important to be clear here that a lot of the original colorful paint was also driven by a different set of wealthy tastes in the past, but over time they've become something that are part of these neighborhoods and a lot of working class people who live in those areas enjoy them and see them as part of kind of the unique character of their neighborhood, and real estate money comes in and flattens all of the outwardly interesting and unique looking parts of a neighborhood Um, into this one sort of much more boring and same-looking aesthetic. This also exists in Brooklyn, where I live now. You see the same very boxy sort of minimalist look with a lot of new developments. And again, they're often gray. Um, There's one specific type of tile that's used in kitchen backsplashes so often in like mostly north and central Brooklyn apartments that are marketed to young white people. Um, though a lot of people literally just call it gentrification tile because it represents so perfectly that aesthetic that these companies are putting forward. Um, now, this is clearly not a serious of an issue. as Some of the other things we've talked about, such as police violence. But I do think it's important to talk about because one thing that displacement and gentrification does is it strips away... The specific character of neighborhoods, which always are built up in some part by the people who live in them, and basically it just starts to become that everywhere in a city looks more and more like the way extremely wealthy people want it to look. And often those wealthy people don't even live in those cities, so it's especially egregious.
3: I was going to say very interesting because this is like exactly how people who don't like socialism describe socialism. Like everything's gray and looks the same. This is housing under socialism. And it's like, that's literally
1: capitalism. Yeah,
0: that's a great point.
1: Yeah. If you wrap it up in a different kind of like box, people would be all for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sameness and efficiency and design can be great if housing is a human right and we're not viewing housing Mm -hmm. as a status symbol and part of our identity, right? Mm -hmm. Like then it's great. Then it's fine, I think. I still think it should be brightly colored. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think also, um, I mean, we're going to probably talk about this more in a little bit. But like, one thing that's important to me is just like, what do people in that area want? Like, if people want gray buildings, and that's what everyone thinks looks good, that's totally fine. Um, But one thing I did want to talk about is sort of the ways that ideas of what looks good from other places can kind of come in and change things. Um, So there's this writer, Kyle Chayka, who coined this term called airspace, which basically refers to the idea that centers of capital all over the world are starting to take on this same aesthetic. His argument is essentially that wealthy executives, mostly from the US and Western Europe, have a very specific aesthetic that feels comfortable and safe to them. And their tastes drive so much of the economy because they're the people who are traveling the most, both for work and vacation, that places all over the world are starting to look very much the same. Um, Some of the symbols of this aesthetic that he points to are, quote, minimalist furniture, craft beer and avocado toast, reclaimed wood, industrial lighting, cortados, fast internet, unquote. Um, this article is about five years old now, so I think some of those aesthetics have shifted slightly, but the basic principle is the same. It's this idea that the tastes of extremely wealthy people and corporations tend to dominate and make everything look and feel kind of the same no matter where you go. And in that process, local culture, street art, community centers, and gathering places, um, small businesses that can't afford to pay higher rents, start to disappear or to be pushed further away from the city center. Um, I just wanted to share this quote because I thought it was kind of funny. This New York Times article describes the aesthetic of Williamsburg, which is a heavily gentrified neighborhood, as, quote, a mostly ugly architectural mishmash executed without an overall vision beyond the prospect for developers of making as much money as quickly as possible, unquote. And I think that's just a really good way of describing what this aesthetic is it's prioritizing making money over what actually looks good or what people what most people in a neighborhood might want
1: right i mean
2: this feeds into what
1: i was going to talk about next which is an example of like what i saw like what you were you just describing julia happening in pittsburgh which is like because of carnegie mellon university And specifically, it's computer science department, a lot of tech companies have set up shop there, like specifically to recruit the CS grads. So like, for example, Google recently opened an office in a neighborhood that like was predominantly black. And now it's like truly like it's I mean, I think I witnessed the change happen in real time in like the course of maybe like three or four years when I was growing up there and like just to see how much of the surrounding area changed in response to Google setting up their office. Like a lot of high-end stores immediately started popping up. And then there were all these like empty apartments in the style that you were just describing Julia, where it was like, everything was gray and it looks very, uh, I don't even know. I don't even want to call it like minimalistic. Cause I think that's like a weird term, but like, just like very, not very like bland looking apartments and like people were being pushed out of their neighborhoods and like, because Google started, like, had this office there, I think the city of Pittsburgh, the government, started devoting more resources to that area to, like, build more shops. Like, I swear there was, like, a new cafe or, like, uh, I don't know what genre of restaurant this is. Like, just call it, like, the sweet green genre restaurant where, like, you get, like, a bowl fast of casual. some kind. Yeah, like a fast casual restaurant that, like, all kind of looks the same aesthetically. Um So, I mean, I just wanted to remark about that just because there was something that I witnessed happen and I was like, holy shit, like, two years ago, this did not look like this.
0: Yeah, it's wild what a difference things like that make in Mm -hmm. what gets investment and even... You know, perceptions of neighborhoods, right? Like all of a mm-hmm. sudden everyone else is like, Oh, that neighborhood's great. We love going there for, you know, whenever our fast casual salad rice bowl was Right. Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like two years before they would have been like, Oh, I never go there. It's right. Really. Yeah. It would be
1: like, 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 Oh, you wouldn't drive through like you
0: wouldn't you would like It's so sad. Yeah.
1: Or people would like say that and you'd be like, What the heck?
0: When I was uh, when I lived in DC I lived in kind of like a break zone. Um and so it was like right between an area Capitol Hill, which was like super, super crazy wealthy and then, like, the Anacostia River, where, Mm -hmm, like, basically mm -hmm. all the Black people in D.C. have had to just live in one corner now, because the city gentrified so fast. Yeah, in Um, some But we could tell, yeah, Yeah, yep, we could tell by our bodega, because they really have their finger on the pulse of things, we could tell how the neighborhood was changing. Because when we first moved in, there was, like, one set of things, and then, like, a year in, they started bringing in, like, really like nice wines and like Milano cookies showed up and we were just like, Oh man, shit's changing. We're going to be priced out soon. Yeah. We can totally tell it from what the bodega guy was bringing in. It was really funny. Oh my God. Um, Somewhat related to that. So I love like all the, the the discussions around aesthetics and like what it looks like. And I think even though it's not as dire, obviously as the issues with policing, it's still worth talking about because it's most visible. I think. To especially to outsiders from that like if you're in a city and that's not your neighborhood you'll probably see more of this stuff um i mentioned this earlier but i'm gonna mention again that i do sometimes worry that the way that people talk about this aspect of gentrification and kind of like what julia was saying does underscore an idea that only middle-class or rich white people want hip coffee shops craft beer and avocado toast um And I think like essentially we're still not really allowing residents to decide what they want in their neighborhoods and their lives, which is like the very important part of that. Some communities like mine see the presence or introduction of these things as proof that their community kind of is cool. You know, like we're a cool community. People will want to visit us. And I think as especially if these places are owned by people in the community and the community likes them, it can be a good thing. Even if they do have kind of like the same hip, Predictable, boring aesthetic because now it's kind of like aspirational if that makes sense like somebody in my neighborhood might be like we have a cafe that's like just like a Brooklyn cafe we're so cool now (laughs) um you know what I mean like yeah it's just a different perspective and then other like Milwaukee residents might be like oh that neighborhood's so fun now they have this cafe like you know I don't know it's just weird the way that that works but
1: Yeah no I think I've
0: heard people
1: in Pittsburgh sort of saying the same thing like when new stuff opens it's like as you were saying earlier Hope like this sort of mid-sized city aspirational uh, attitude where they like want there's like oh like they want to model themselves after larger cities so yeah like people get excited when like a new bar opens and stuff.
0: Yeah yeah.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's totally right, Hope, that like it's not really about the aesthetic. It's more about ownership and control and agency in what spaces are in your neighborhood being given over to huge corporations instead of the people actually living in a neighborhood. Um, I guess one thing I would just add to that also is that I think sometimes those spaces and those resources already do exist to an extent in an area. And it's about investing in those existing resources and, you know, providing a city, providing resources to a community for like building repairs or trash cleanup and things that can help sort of improve the spaces that already exist um Mm -hmm. because I think sometimes people especially people who don't live in an area might have the perception that there aren't any bars in this area or there are no clubs like there's nowhere to hang out at night but then if you talk to people who live in the area they're like oh no there's this like you know club that runs out of this restaurant after it closes at night or like there may be more sort of Underground or informal spaces that are meeting those needs, um, but then as you know, more corporate versions of those things come in. One, police will start shutting down those spaces, which happens a lot. Like they'll be like, "This is unlicensed. You can't serve alcohol." Like those types of policies are used, and noise complaints are used to shut down businesses that are doing things that have been criminalized. Um, And the other thing is that as existing residents of the neighborhood who went to those spaces are displaced by rising rents, um, getting evicted for bullshit reasons, their landlords selling their building to a developer, um, and as people start spending money at these new, you know, big chain businesses that are coming in, those businesses also just have a harder time surviving financially. And I think a lot of times, like, those places that were there previously might be meeting needs beyond just, like, the place to get a coffee or, like, you know, the place to get a drink. Um, They're also community spaces. And one example that comes to mind for me is when I first moved to Brooklyn, like, five or six years ago, there was this gym on my block that was like, you know, it was like a one-room gym. It didn't have a ton of stuff, but it had, you know, everything you needed, and it was very affordable, especially for me at the time, I was getting paid minimum wage, and the membership was like, something like, it was like 100 or 200 bucks a year, um, which, yeah, was like, great, because I couldn't afford, like, a corporate gym membership at the time, um but also the person who ran it was like you know he was just sort of a guy who was like watching out for people in the neighborhood keeping an eye on things um it was you know like he would be standing outside or like walking along the block and i don't know like i or other people would get catcalled a lot for example and he would like ask people to stop or like talk to them or like check to make sure people were okay um and just generally was like someone who was keeping an eye on his neighborhood and making sure that everyone was like good um and i went by that area more recently because i had moved to a different block and it was closed um and there's actually nothing there right now it's just closed so that's frustrating because it was probably like he couldn't afford the rent so now like that landlord is charging more rent but they're not even getting any rent because there's not a business there um but then also like around the same time a lot more big chain gyms have started opening up like now there's like a crunch gym um a couple blocks away from there as well so it's like this you know, this business that was not just a gym, it was also serving all of these other community needs, and it was also, like, a community gathering space, like, people would hang out and drink outside of it, and he was someone who was fine with people doing that. So, like, it served all of these purposes that now are not being met by the corporate gym down the street. Um, So I do think sometimes those alternatives when they come in like it is definitely not just about the aesthetics it's about the fact that they're not serving these needs and they're not filling a role in the community that other spaces that existed previously served and that in turn causes people to feel more like they need to rely on the police they don't know their neighbors as well they don't have places to just like meet and hang out with people um in the area so Yeah, it just has like far-reaching impact beyond, you know, the kind of like avocado toastification of neighborhoods.
1: Right. I think that's like I mean it's something that developers miss because I think they're like, oh, functionally, oh, what do people want in this neighborhood? Oh, a gym. Like, oh, like even though we crowded out this like Uh, I guess, like, small, like, one-person-run gym, it's okay because we're just going to replace it with another gym so the people who live in this neighborhood can still go to the gym. But they're missing out on, like, what you were pointing out earlier, Julia, which is, like, the community role that, like, this gym or any other facility, like, it served for the neighborhood where it's, like, I mean, like, maybe it's possible, but I kind of find it hard to imagine that people could foster the same sense of, like, community in one of those, like, giant chain-run not you don't really know who the owner is sort of
2: place. Yeah, but you know what they are doing there is running a gentrifiers anonymous
0: meeting. <laughs> Wait, that's that's it, right? Isn't that the way we end gentrification? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's our whole what can we do about a section is just that. Gentrifiers Anonymous chapter. <laughs> yeah, please please, oh please do
2: not start your own <laughs> <laughs> chapter. Um But yes, we did want to talk about um, some things that we as individuals can do to fight gentrification. Um, As we've talked about a lot on this episode, a lot of gentrification and displacement is driven by real estate investment and huge corporations. It's not really about individual tenant choices. Um, But that said, there are still things that you can do to fight gentrification in your neighborhood, um, primarily by getting involved with housing and tenants' rights activism in your area. Um, at the bigger time commitment end of this, that could look like organizing a tenant's union in your building or trying to put together a community land trust, um, which is this model that's had some success at protecting affordable housing by creating essentially a nonprofit that owns an area of land, and then it's controlled mostly by tenants and existing neighborhood residents. Um, it could also mean starting a campaign against a new luxury development in your area, Um, In New York, for example, a lot of displacement of low-income residents is driven by rezoning, which is basically where the city decides that a neighborhood can be open to new developments. These rezonings require a few layers of approvals um, by local government, but they're often driven by real estate investment and have very little input from anyone else, um, you know, just like average neighborhood residents which means that they help turn neighborhoods into places full of giant luxury condo buildings and big chain businesses that push out smaller building and business owners and in turn push out tenants and people living in the area. So some of the most effective housing organizing here has focused on calling attention to this process and not letting things just be pushed through without any community input, um, fighting for new developments to have 100% affordable housing, um, pushing for amenities that residents actually want and need instead of just whatever an investment bank thinks rich people will like. So that might mean like, you know, a community meeting space in the lobby instead of a Starbucks. Um, Another good place to start is to try to find out more about how housing works in your neighborhood, um, because it's different everywhere. I was just talking about some New York specific things, but... You know, start looking into who owns the building you live in. In most places, this is public information. um, And, you know, who owns other buildings in the area? Who are the worst landlords in your area when it comes to things like evictions and tenant harassment? um, How do zoning and housing laws work in your area? They're often very complicated and difficult to navigate, intentionally so. So it can take some work to figure them out. Um, but often if you have good local reporting, um, that is a good place to start in terms of figuring out who might be good targets for activism. Um, and if you know people who are being harassed by their landlord or threatened with eviction, try to help them figure out how to stop it. Um, you know this can be very effective when you can organize a big group of people who are all experiencing similar issues or all have the same big landlord but sometimes it can be as simple as just being able to recommend a free legal clinic for tenants or helping someone find a housing attorney who does free consultations which is a thing that some housing attorneys do um at the lower time commitment end of this it could also look like organizing with an existing group that does tenants rights work in your area um And getting to know your neighbors, the people who live in your building, but also the people who live in your wider neighborhood, and that includes people who are unhoused. Um, And this is probably an obvious one for most of our listeners, but don't call the police unless you absolutely have to. And, you know, do the work to figure out what your other options are, set up your support network, put yourself in the best position possible to really never have to call the police, because I think that is one of the biggest things that... Individuals can do to help prevent displacement and arrests of people in your neighborhood.
0: Those are really good suggestions, Julia. Thank you for doing that and putting all this together for us and for our listeners. Or you can start a Judge Fires Anonymous near you. I mean, why or? It's a both.
3: It's
2: true. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if you do start what? one, please, please send us an email about it. Let us know how it goes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Take photos.
0: I and you need to,
1: like, record the meeting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. Those are awesome. I have one little thing to throw in that we, our neighborhood has a community development organization that's been hugely important in ensuring investment. Um, And that like the development on the neighborhood is focused on what people want. So it's the mechanism really for organizing the neighborhood. They're awesome. They help people afford repairs. Like they'll just give you a grant to fix things on your house. Um And they'll connect you with neighbors who do work on houses, which is really cool. They'll help you catch up on your mortgage and tax payments. Um, They do like leadership classes and they'll help you start a business in our neighborhood. And so like they they kind of manage three different neighborhoods that are connected here. And like the work they've done is really amazing. So that's my plug for community development organizations. You should start one if you don't have one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, yes. Um, I think that's all for today's episode. There's so much more we could say, um, but we're out of time. So I think we'll end it there. Um, I'm going to do the outro. I'm a little rusty. I haven't done it in a while. But uh, we have some sick merch on our website. So that's one thing we have. Oh. Um. You can <laughs> you can follow us and listen to us on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere you're getting the podcast from your technology into your ear holes, you can do it. Um, if you leave a five-star review on iTunes, I will personally think nice thoughts about you. Awesome. Um, so I'll be checking that. <laughs> to the people that have been
3: leaving <laughs> negative reviews, we're watching you. Well, so and it's just so technical.
1: embarrassing. <laughs> like, it's not like, it's not even a good negative review.
3: Like No, it's not. They're not <laughs> like, going to insult at all. Yeah. Like I'm not insulted. I think you're
0: embarrassing. Okay. If you leave us a five-star <laughs> review, I'll think nice things about you. If you leave a one-star review, we feel sad for you. We all really feel sad for you. Who hurt so you that you don't love our podcast? Either leave better, more interesting one-star reviews, or just, like, do anything else. Like, anything. Have a dog, Preferably take anything. a walk. <laughs> those old Garfield, Garfield without Garfield cartoons to uh-huh. do your life. <laughs> Uh, I think that's it. All right. Hey, love you. Bye. Love awesome. you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the bitch.